Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey everybody, welcome into another episode of Can We Please Talk Podcast. As always, I am Mike Leon. And knowing enough to not try and run for president a second time after losing <laughs> my previous campaign. I'm Nick Samari. You ran for president. No wonder. No wonder you <laughs> siphoned some of these votes from the general election. Exa- exa- yeah, exactly. And by right. win by more. On the program, <laughs> on the program today, uh, the former guy who was president, says he wants to be the guy again. Former President Donald Trump announced his 2024 presidential bid. Nick and I will take you through his speech, the legal hurdles and challenges still in front of the former president, plus a preview of what this could mean for the 2024 elections. Later on the program, speaking of former presidents who want to come back into power, Nick, David Marchek, he's the author of The Peaceful Transfer of Power, an oral history of America's presidential transitions. He's also the dean of the, Co- the Kogod School of Business over there at American University. He joins the show, takes us inside this fantastic book, which is out now available wherever books are sold. Plus the podcast he did on this topic. This guy's worked for not only uh, the Biden and Obama administrations, I, th- I believe he started to around the Clinton administration time. Uh, we talk everything about his book, 2024, the MAGA movement, and how this isn't the most volatile time in our nation's history. You don't say, Nick. More on that later on in the show. Um, before we get started here, I do want to say, and before I say hello to my co-host, Nick Saveri, I want to send condolences out uh, to the families affected by the recent shootings that have happened in Idaho and Virginia. If you haven't heard about these two stories, the shooting uh, over at the University of Virginia campus and the former football player that ended up shooting three of his former teammates, injuring a couple other uh, teammates as well. Uh, Three people died in that incident. And then the shootings that happened up in, uh, I believe, up in Idaho um, with four people, four college students uh, are dead as a result of it. Um, It's very heartbreaking for everything that's been happening and, and things that we've covered on this show with respect to mass shootings and gun violence that continues to, to rock small communities, larger cities, whatever it may be, all gun violence uh, affects us all in different ways. And the, the, the lives that have been lost because of this senseless tragedy, I don't want to get into the gun part of this. We all know what the issue is. Uh, and until we uh, stop that at its core, uh, we're going to see more of this and we're going to have more moments like this where there's heartfelt, you know, condolences sent out. But we need to do more on the action part of this. But I did want to address that because I saw that stuff um, playing out over the last couple of days and some notes on the investigation part of this. I think both suspects have been 
apprehended uh, in that as of this taping, but my condolences to everybody out there that's affected in those two places in Idaho and Virginia. Um, also, Nick, uh, before I say hello to you, although I'm saying hello in parallel, um, as of this taping, it just came out right now. The House has gone back to the Republican Party. According to projections from CNN and NBC News, Republicans will have the slim majority in the U.S. House of Representatives as they will win the projected 218 seats uh, to, to maintain control. Could be a slim majority. Still don't know because of all the votes that are happening in California. Votes are still being tabulated there. Colorado has a couple races that will probably trigger a, um, a uh, excuse me, well, what's the, a recount? Thank you. Jeez, why couldn't I find the words there? So uh, still a lot to play out there. And then obviously what will happen uh, for the Senate part of this uh, with the December runoff between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker down in Georgia. So the Senate will still stay in Democratic control, whether it be 51-49 or a 50-50 split. We'll see. But the House right now is of projections. Back to the Republican Party. Uh, Nick, what do you, what's going on? Tell, talk to me. Talk to me, my friend. How are you? I'm, I'm good. You know, it's interesting. I've um, you know, There's a couple of people at work. I'm going to shout them out um, between next couple episodes. You know, people have been avidly listening. And you've just heaped so much praise, you know, from our DC live show to the content we've been doing. You know, Mike, you and I have been on a run lately with authors, you know, um, like three, almost like three of our last four shows have involved authors um, and all three of them just telling amazing stories about history, both in sports and, um, you know, in politics. Yeah. You know, but as as that's been shared with me, I have a particular friend, Chris, uh, Chris Klesk, actually, who's a fan of the show super supportive and i shout him out on this episode uh every time the show comes up and he you know I, people ask me at work about it and you know i you know i haven't given too much details about what may be what's going to be happening to us and obviously i want to be a little cryptic because there's still some legal stuff that we've got to work out with um you know our partners soon to be but every time he's heard stuff he always heaps so much praise on the work that we're doing and asks and i when i'm asked about this or told about this um you know, I tend to kind of be very demure. You know, Mike and I have very different you know, personas when it comes to handling fame, I guess. Um, and but Chris is always the one who's just stunned by my reaction in the sense of like people will say to me often, like, this is incredible. This sounds so cool. I've heard the show. I've left a rating and I kind of take it all in. I'm very grateful, obviously, you know, love it. Don't like it. Just leave a review. Five stars preferable. Right. But Chris has always been the one that will say, like, I don't know why you are so calm about this like the show is incredible it keeps taking off it keeps blowing up and mike does this a lot too like mike's you know an incredible promoter but sees the vision that this show is as i do too but i go through a level of imposter syndrome with this all coming through in the sense that you know i'll take you all through the hood a little bit for me um this is real like mike and i text this to each other all the time like we talk about the guests that come on and just more and more people that have paid attention, they don't necessarily come on the show yet, but they know who we are, you know, the, us as two people. And it's bizarre, you know, <laughs> and so I sort of still take it all in. I'm obviously, I always remember, I, I remain forever grateful, forever humble, um, but I sometimes struggle with that, struggle with accepting how much this show has grown over the last two years. You know, today, you know, we're in November, you know, we're we're now a little bit past our two year anniversary and it still blows me away. I guess I'm rambling here because I, I sit in gratitude, but I also sit with the fact that like, I can really struggle with trying to speak to how proud I am of the show. So I say all that because it's important to remain humble, but it's also important to speak on your behalf too. you know, be proud of the work that you're doing. So yeah, I, I say all this and maybe I'll say all this because it's soon to be my birthday. So I'm sort of sitting in a place of reflection, but I'm, I'm in a good space. Family is good as well. Happy and healthy. So thank goodness. So Mike, what about you though? How are you doing? Dude? Well, first off, let's, let's unpack a couple of things there. First, Chris, shout out to you, sir. Appreciate you. Uh, keep listening, subscribe and tell your friends. Um, hopefully they're not in the same circle as Nick's friends who are in the circle as my friends who actually here and there listen to the show and then they complain about it. Um, I have always been comfortable with whatever trajectory this goes because, you know, I'm the one driving the bus, right? So like, I know the route we're going on and I know where I'm taking us to and I know how to get to the destination. Uh, I've never done it before, but it doesn't mean that I don't know how to get there. And it doesn't mean I haven't seen other people do it before. Uh, a lot of people, I think we had an author a while back on 
that was the first Mexican author to write like a self-help book. And, and he said, sometimes it's tough to see the vision when you've never seen anybody that looks like you do it. And I, off air, I was like, I don't subscribe to that. I'm just going to do. Do or do not, there is no try. I've said that to you a bunch. And Yoda said that back in 78 or 76, whatever it is, Star Wars nerds, don't write in. Okay. Don't tell me what year it was. But um, I've always lived by that. It's it's 80. It's okay. It's 80. He said that in 1980. I don't think that's it's right. Empire Strikes Back, my man. Okay. All right. All right. All right. See, and this is what I'm talking about. And this is why we have Nick Severa on the show. But um, Yoda said that, and that's been my motto uh, for life. I tell people that all the time when they come visit me uh, in Florida and they live 40 minutes uh, and I live 40 minutes away and they won't come over here or vice versa. And I'm like, hey, do or do not. There is no try. Like, I'm going to be here. If you want to meet me there, cool. If not, you know, you don't have to. No big deal. Um, so shout out to Chris, shout out to uh, Nick being cryptic about the trajectory of this show and what's going to be happening soon. You're going to hear an announcement about this program. Don't worry, not going anywhere. Just getting a little bit of a boost and we're going to be on a bigger stage, uh, let's call it. But uh, I'm, I'm super grateful for everybody that watches, listens, writes in and nothing will set you back. Like somebody commenting on our Kyrie Irving purse our, our Kyrie Irving post, excuse me. And that person wrote. Um, what is the name of this show? So that way I know not to listen to this garbage. And I wrote back, it's called High <laughs> Hater Who Doesn't Have a Show Podcast. Try to get one. Um, so don't play with me because this is what I this is what I do for a living. This isn't a hobby. I've been producing shows for a long time across various networks in sports and news. I know what this should sound like, look like, and that's why we have gotten to where we are and we're about to get a bigger boost. And you are free to as Nick Severi has said once upon a time, you don't like what we say, you want to email us, or maybe you think you could do just as good as us. Go start your own RSS feed. Do or do not, there is no try, okay? So I leave that message to the listeners that are out there that said, maybe I could do this. Maybe I can do this. Who's stopping you? Only you yourself, do or do, there is no try. We leave it there because I'm doing great and I'm doing really fantastic right now. Our country right now is doing so-so because- Perfect segue, if I may, Nick. A three-time, three times, this is the third time that this man has decided to run for president of the United States. And I'm talking about the former president, Donald John Trump. If you don't know, you've been living under a rock. You don't watch the news. Donald J. Trump has decided to announce his bid for 2024 and the presidential election that will happen in 2024. We're still waiting to hear if President Biden will run for re-election. I believe he has hinted that he will. He will be 80 years old. Donald Trump will be 78 when that happens. So the battle of, of uh, two old guys at the barbecue fighting it out to see who will lead this country. Sounds about right for this country. Uh, if you missed some of the speech, I want Nick, I want you to take a listen. We're going to react on the other side and talk about what all of this will mean, not only for the future of the GOP and the different directions it's being pulled in right now, but what it means for the 2024 uh, elections, the generals. And what it means for you listening out there in terms of voting. So take a listen first to the former president announcing that he's running for re-election in 2024. To make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for president of the United States. Two years ago, when I left office, the United States stood ready for its golden age. Our nation was at the pinnacle of power, prosperity and prestige towering above all rivals, vanquishing all enemies, and striding into the future, confident and so strong. I do want to point out that in the midterms, my endorsement success rate was 232 wins and only 22 losses. You don't hear that from the media. We will immediately tackle inflation and bring down to a level that it was, you know, we were at zero, but actually, the best number is 1%. Do you know that? You don't want it really zero. You're, but we've, we were at zero. We actually got it to exactly 1%, the perfect number. One thing every economist agrees, don't have it zero. Have it like at 1%. They even say one to two. But I said, let's do one. That, that always makes me laugh. I, I was listening to that, watching a little bit of the speech, uh, because the networks, some of the networks are carrying it, some were not. We can get into the media coverage of this as well, which has been the ire of a few people out there that are not only pundits, but hosts and things like that. Shout out to Eamon Mohideen over at MSNBC, who mentioned about the different headlines of all the periodicals from the national to local level of how they 
worded the heading of President, former President Donald Trump running for re-election. Um, Trump mentioning there that he thinks inflation, the perfect number is 1%. Do you know that, Nick? It's probably not. Um, but I do want to give some stats before we get into um, the, the former president running and what this means. This is from factcheck.org. You could check out these statistics there as, as they compile all of the data. They're a project from the Annenberg Public Policy Center. They compiled the final numbers for the entirety of Donald Trump's time in office. Uh, this was obviously as of October of 2021. So these were the final numbers when Trump left. He talked about the height of prosperity and things like that. The economy, uh, as Trump was leaving, lost 2.9 million jobs. And the unemployment rate increased by 1.6 percentage points to 6.3%. That's after Donald Trump left office. Again, a lot of contributing factors there when he was leaving. Obviously, we know about COVID. We know about some of the different workforces that started to lay off people. So dealing with a global pandemic, just in the interest of fairness there. Uh, paychecks grew faster than inflation. Average weekly earnings for all workers were up 8.7% after inflation. After tax, corporate profits went up. Stock markets set new records. The S&P 500 rose to 67.8%. Federal debt held by the public went up from $14.4 trillion to $21.6 trillion. Illegal immigration uh, as Trump's final numbers increased. So he was a little bit wrong there. Uh, a little bit, a lot of it. Apprehensions at the Southwest border rose to 14.7% uh, compared to his uh, so compared to 2016. Obviously he took office in 2017. The murder rate rose to the highest level since 1997, Trump's last year in office. Handgun production rose to 12.5% as compared to before he came into office in 2016. Trump filled one third of the Supreme Court seats, nearly 30 percent of the appellate court seats and a quarter of the district court seats. And you can check out the final uh, report from, like I mentioned, factcheck.org in terms of jobs loss, minus two point eight seven million job openings had risen. Uh, the what the poverty rate was, which was down one point three points. Um, home prices, home ownership was up. Uh, food stamp recipients was down. Corporate profits were up. Federal debt held by the public was up 50%, like I mentioned there. So all of these numbers, if you want to fact check the former president in real time, available on factcheck.org, funny enough. Um, Nick, a couple things there uh, that stood out to you from not only the speech, but what this means uh, going forward as the former president is now running and the GOP now is, is trotting out a couple of different people that, you know, could potentially face off against Trump in the primary. Mike Pompeo has kind of alluded to maybe he'll run for office. I don't know what office, because I don't know what uh, General Mike Pompeo thinks he's winning or what state he could carry. Uh, former Vice President Mike Pence, as we're recording this, is doing a CNN town hall. He's done uh, a bevy of media interviews recently across major networks promoting his new book, that details what happened to him on January 6th. Obviously, he's kind of distanced himself from the former president. And then obviously, everybody's favorite, at least on the GOP side, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who won by at least uh, plus 20 points down here in his reelection campaign. People thinking maybe he could be the new face of the GOP party. Let me get to some of your overall takeaways about uh, the former president's speech, him running, some people that could run against him, and then fact checking the former president in real time. There's a, <laughs> I'm not quite sure where to start. I think I'll start with, because I'm, I'm a student of history. So I thought of his speech. I thought of the fact he was filing to run again as probably one of the most divisive moments in the history of the Republican Party. In 1900, you know, um, Teddy Roosevelt wins, you know, wins the White House. Um, I think by 1908, he had or 1904 i always forget this <clears throat> he there was a split within the party you know like he eventually moves on um you know and you have the founding of the bull moose party and any historian who's a fan of the show please write in and give me correct the details on it or i'll just come on another show and you know correct myself but but basically the party split like they there was a question about like should teddy roosevelt still be the leader of the party or still run and then you know there was a schism there not since then can i think of a time when there's been this level of disunity within the party, 1964, the Republicans put out Barry Goldwater, who who basically is the the forerunner for Ronald Reagan, 
Donald Trump, you know, really this ultra conservative, um, which was essentially a backlash to civil rights. Um, but even then, the party unified around him. And then four years later, you know, Richard Nixon won, you know, won the White House. But I can't. But even then, there was no you know schism. The reaction to Trump announcing, you know, one of the funniest pieces I saw, if you had to take a guess what publication it came in, most of you would not get it. It was actually in the New York Post. And it was just a small little clip at the New York Post, full full disclosure, owned by Rupert Murdoch, right? Owner of Fox News. Um, but was so derisive of, the, of Donald Trump. And it really was a microcosm to where conservative media might be in their attitude toward this person running again. There are three numbers that come to mind that combat what Trump just said about how great he is, how great the country is. And the numbers are as follows. 2018, 2020, and 2022. In 2018, the Republicans lose control of the House. An indictment on Trump's presidency in the midterm, which normally Republicans usually show out in the midterm. The Democrats actually, you know, won back the, um, you know, won back the House. In 2020, you know, Trump runs for re-election, loses quite noticeably. Uh, quite handily to Joe Biden. Uh, in addition, Georgia flips to the Democrats. Uh, Democrats leave that election winning both the Senate and the White House and, and had control of the House. And then there's 2022. You know, the Republicans will take a slim majority of the White House, um, will not win the Senate. You know, we'll see more if the Democrats pick up its 51st seat uh, with the runoff on December 6th in Georgia. On three separate occasions since 2016, at the federal election level, MAGA keeps losing. Now, the Republicans will spin this and say, well, they won back the House. But by the slimmest of majorities, and so much so that there's already talk that Kevin McCarthy, current House Speaker, or theoretically going to be you know, pushed forward to be the Speaker, will have to negotiate because he may not have the support to win that seat. It's stunning what is happening to the Republican Party. I'm not at all surprised that this person is running. Um, he can't lose. It's not in his nature. You know, while Trump is not as successful as he'd like to be, because, I mean, as evidenced by not <laughs> the unwillingness to show his taxes, he can't handle losing. I feel like I'm about to do an impression of Maggie Haberman, but one that has more integrity than her. Sorry, I'm just going to put it out there. Interesting. Um, but you know, this is his track record. You know, this is a person who is a habitual liar. This is a person who is uncomfortable with the thought of being put to the back burner. You saw that actually with his reaction to Ron DeSantis right after DeSantis had won or was on the verge of winning his election in Florida. The former president was already coming out and taking shots at you know the governor of Florida. I think referring to him as Ron DeSanctimonious and Correct. um. You could see that. And for anyone who has paid attention to former President Trump at all, knows that this is a person who cannot stand not being at the head of the table. You know, there's a great clip of him jumping ahead of, oh, I think Angela Merkel, the former um, you know, prime minister of Germany or president of Germany. Uh, or, or he did in front of like Emmanuel Macron. I, I, yeah, I think he did it like in front of the G7 folks. Yeah, like, he just he, like ran in front of someone, right? Because that's that's Trump in in isolation. Like he has to be at the forefront of it. Um, and it was really telling that you know his speech. I don't know how many members of his family was there. I, I think Roger Stone was there, um, but it was a smaller group than he had you know I guess anticipated. But the other thing, Mike, though, is, and it's just Trump's ego. There's no model for him to win. Currently, if Biden were to run again, there is no voting model we're going to see anytime soon that has the president projected. The only possibility is with House control, maybe there's a level of stagnation. But President Biden's been on a bit of a run with his messaging lately, pointing out whether Republicans are failing this country or not supporting sound policy. Um, so maybe I guess there's that. Mike, if the Republicans had that red tsunami or whatever they want to call it, this makes perfect sense because right. they would have said that, you know, Trump's influence, MAGA, um, neo fascism, whatever you want to call it, was starting to make a, a return. Young people, women, so many people came out on November 3rd. Sorry, November 8th. 
um, and said no. Coming off of that ass kicking in the election, you choose now to run based on what? And again, this is not surprising. Data does not play a role in President Trump. Now, let's talk about why he's doing this, or at least the theory that I'm working off of. It's fear prosecution, because at this moment, from the moment he decides to run again, any type of movement by the Department of Justice against him will now be seen as a political move, which potentially could backfire Merrick Garland. And I think that may be part of it. He needs political cover because as we had on Ellie Honeg, we've had on other legal experts who talked about the fact that the president has so many political fires to put out right now that his lawyers do. And in fact, most notably, we had someone on that when we asked them, what is the legal trouble that, you're, that you would be most concerned about staying up at night? Loyal listeners, if you remember, it was Georgia, the interference in the Georgia election, which is now being discussed where you're going to have Senator Lindsey Graham having to appear and, and appear in, in court. Yeah. And Governor just, Brian Kemp. He has that's to. right. All of this is unfolding. So what's the political cover that this man can have? Well, run for president. And it's so early an announcement that the next year and change is going to be two years is just kind of putting yourself out there. And most times when you make yourself the candidate so early, you leave yourself open to attacks. Right. You know, in 2015, 2016, we saw the best shot that Republicans could take in the form of Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush. Ted Cruz and the like, and all of them just wilted. Most notably, Ted Cruz had his wife insulted by this pre- by the former president and said nothing. You know, um, we'll see how Ron DeSantis handles this. We'll see how. I don't take Mike Pompeo seriously. Um, no, me neither. I've heard I've, real quick. I've heard some political strategists talk about uh, Ron DeSantis and how mundane he is. How uh, you know, obviously, we've played some of his clips from his victory speeches or other speeches that he's made with respect to the migrant uh, stuff and Martha's Vineyard. And it's been very cloaked in like buzzword language, but there's nothing that generates a buzz beyond Florida. Um, I know other people maybe feel that he could carry, um, you know, some weight in some other uh, traditional red states that are trying to move more towards, you know, some semblance of a center right, mid center right type of candidate. I don't know if Ron DeSantis is that, uh, given some of the legislation that he's passed down here in Florida. I don't think he's that, but we'll see. Uh, one thing I did want to know, because you were talking about uh, President Trump and he mentioned there are some statistics on like his wins and how he doesn't get credit for that. I want to read you something here from NPR about Republicans. Obviously, there was a bunch of competitive races in the Senate and the House, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Arizona, Nevada. These were competitive races that Republicans thought that they could win. You had Trump back candidates, Doug Mastriano, Dr. Oz was in there. You still had Carrie Lake who lost in Nevada, Adam Laxaw. All those candidates ended up losing. 64 House races, according to Cook Political Report, that they rated they rated as toss-ups or leaning towards either a Democratic or Republican uh, candidate filling that seat. Trump endorsed 21 of them, only seven won. It was even worse for Trump candidates in some of the most competitive races, Three dozen toss-up races, Trump backed nine candidates, only one has won. So a little bit of, you know, uh, I'm not trying as much to fact check, but like he said a bunch of things there. And this is part of the challenge. Again, the media's coverage of this. I want to get into this real quick before we go to the break, because uh, I mentioned Eamon Mohideen, the the host over at MSNBC. He recently posted on social media five different articles, the way the headlines covered former President Trump, um, you know, announcing a run for president. Uh, Here, this one from CNN, former President Donald Trump announces a White House bid for 2024. This is from The Guardian out there uh, on our friends across the pond. Make America great and glorious again. Trump defies Republican critics by officially announcing for 2024. Fox News, no shocker here. Donald Trump announces 2024 reelection run for president. Uh, I forget where this headline's from. I think it's from Yahoo News, Trump twice impeached and under criminal investigation launches 2024 campaign. NPR, probably the best summation one of the group. If you're looking for something in this direction, Trump, who lied about the 2020 election, inspired an insurrection, announces third White House bid. 
What have you made of some of the media coverage? Because some networks chose not to air the former president's um, speech there, announcing that he's running uh, for for president again. Uh, One unreal right-wing reporter, not on a major network, on some digital network. I'm not even going to mention it here because I don't want to give it uh, air. Um, She said, this is against the First Amendment uh, for not covering this. I don't think she knows how the First Amendment works. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty positive. She doesn't know how the First Amendment works. Uh, it doesn't matter that a private network, it's not covered in there. They didn't have television networks back then. But anyway, I digress on the First Amendment. Um, what are some of your takeaways of the way the coverage has been made of the former president running, given the backdrop of the legal troubles and stuff like that, but the way they've kind of covered this, you know, like here's a guy who tried to stay in power and uh, what happened on January 6th, However, uh, was was his culpability? We'll find out eventually with respect to the investigations that are happening. But what do you make of the way the media has been covering it? You know, it's an interesting game to play. I was trying to this morning. You know, you and I were texting about this. Um, you know, the the line about editorializing. It's one thing if you're writing an editorial about how you feel about this. That's fine. But in the headline, can you keep it factual? And you know, if you're pointing out someone who is an election denier, which is true. I mean, even now, I don't know if he's necessarily conceded, um, you know, a person who, you know, I mean, like there's there's some factual statements you can use or there's facts about the former president that can appear in a headline to say that this person's running again. Um, all of that's valid. You know, um, I think what's telling is that, you know, in 2015, when when Trump had run or had announced it was really interesting to see how people reacted to it. You know, the former head of CNN News, um, I forget his name, had, had admitted that like Trump was great for their ratings, you know, the vitriol against him. Um, so much so that they had people, most famously Jeffrey Lord, who was a, um, you know, a conservative who really, I mean, said some pretty erroneous stuff there and was never, it was hardly fact checked until eventually he was pushed out um, that, you know, openly supported the president and the network for the most part was not pushing back against, you know, the, against the lies that the former president was telling, or even when he was running Um, NBC, most famously, you know, here's a former employee, you know, through the apprentice who I remember in 2015, my, my oldest had just been born every morning. It felt like on the today show, Samantha Guthrie and her co-host would take a call from this guy. You know, Trump would call from his car, and talk about a debate he was on or something. And they would just give him full runway. Very little pushback against a presidential candidate. What these headlines are telling me is that some people learn their lesson. And they're not going to just simply set back and let this pay- person for entertainment dollars or for ratings and clicks be able to say whatever he wants. or And to tell it in a way that says, Hey, this person just running for president. Like, no, no, this is an election denier. This is all fair game now. And it's a question of where are media outlets going to be? You know, are people going to try to toe that line? Um, or are people like NPR going to be very op- open about, say whatever you want about our politics, but this is who this person is. Um, yeah, I think there's good. I think we're going to be in an interesting place this time. CNN, most notably, has had mandates that basically they are playing it more to not being anti-Trump, which you can make of that what you will. They are trying to be more news oriented, which is funny because they're actually losing numbers to MSNBC at this point, who is very unabashedly anti-Trump. But even Fox News, Fox ran the, the, the speech yesterday. But a paper that Rupert Murdoch controls very, very took very light. It was very light on the president jokingly. So where's Rupert Murdoch in this? And I have to ask that question openly because now you have to start paying attention to media people. You know, we were talking about Washington, what the Washington Post said. You know, they had, you know, um, you know, they were given a pretty high rating for the way they put that headline out. Folks, media ownership matters. Remember who owns the Washington Post? Jeff Bezos. So where's Jeff Bezos's view in this? In in 2016, was he also one of those folks that didn't want to sort of, you know, want to toe the line? And now in 2022, in looking at an upcoming election, are people going to be more just nakedly obvious 
about their leanings. And it's just as journalists or as you know, people in the journalism space, you know, like this show now, you ask yourself, where is that line to be factual or to be editorial? Yeah. A couple of things there before we go to the break. Um, I'm, uh, you were mentioning about Fox News. Uh, you know, if you recall, we had we had a former Fox Sports journalist on when we were talking about the live Saudi golf stuff. And one of the things we were talking to him off air about was how Fox never really editorialized anything that he kind of did. He never got a tap on the shoulder. Hey, I need you to amend this. Take this down. I've mentioned a few times uh, working at Fox News. Obviously, I I never saw that happen where senior producer would step in. Hey, I got a call from downstairs. Do this, do that. Not to say that it doesn't happen, but just more or less in the sense of when we're talking about the Trump stuff and the way they're covering it. And then another Murdoch entity, the New York Post, put that funny headline on the bottom of their recent page that said uh, Florida man uh, makes announcement. So they put it down as like the bottom. So it's almost like one entity from the Murdoch empire Maybe a signaling that Rupert Murdoch has kind of shifted his attention with respect to what conservative candidates he thinks are best to to lead the country. And then but in the same vein, his bread and butter, let's call it for lack of a better term, is obviously devoting to coverage. And like you said, you know, you still have Tucker and Jesse Waters that are still fighting for these guys and and Sean Hannity. and, And all three of those guys probably have the three biggest audience audiences on that network. So the coverage is not, uh, it's weird. Like it's, it's like, which one are you, or what side are you on Rupert? I'm here to tell you, Rupert doesn't probably editorialize that much. If one paper is running something and Fox news is running something else. That's, that's first on that. Um, for me on the coverage of it, I've said this a bunch, said this on other shows. I'm saying on this show, uh, the media has a huge responsibility, uh, to be able to cover people from a factual perspective. Stop putting on these fringe element characters as surrogates for Donald Trump or for anybody else that doesn't believe in right, wrong. Let's take party out for a second, Uh, even though it's tough to take that out because we all know which party we're talking about. But when you start putting on Carrie Lake at 9 a.m. on the Sunday shows and this woman has said racist things about illegal immigrants that look like me and sound like me, and then she has continued with the lie about what happened in the 2020 election. And uh, uh, contrary to every election expert, state sec- secretaries of state in, in different places and, and court cases that have all been thrown out of court or rejected for lack of evidence, when she continues to spout that, why are we putting that woman on at nine? I don't care that she's running for governor of Arizona, but it doesn't matter. Just like Katie Hobbs chose to not debate her, and there was some pushback on that. Katie Hobbs, you made a smart decision. You don't don't argue with a fool because to the outside, it's the, it's the same. I don't know how the expression goes. I think it's like that. Um, so I think the media has to do the same thing here. Listen, you want to have Mike Pompeo on? That's one thing. Mike Pompeo served in a government role. He worked for the former president. I think Mike Pompeo is a contributor on a network. I just use him as an example because you want to talk to somebody that actually worked for the former administration and happens to maybe either disagree or agree with the president. I'm okay with that. Regardless of what he says, that's a lie. You can check him in real time. That's different. But I'm talking more about the booking of the guest. That is where we need to start getting back to right, wrong, fact, fiction. We cannot have fringe element people that you know just happen to you know circle the Trump orbit or are rooting for Trump uh, on these networks that are out there spouting. And and luckily, you know, some of the mainstream network has has kind of cut that off, and it's moved to the Newsmaxes and OANs, which is where I think it should live. It should live on the Newsmaxes and OANs. Keep that stuff over there. But I think the media has a huge responsibility here from an from an editorial standpoint on the digital side. People read clickbait stuff. Let's start. I don't know if you need to do what NPR did, but I know you don't need to just do what Fox News did. Hey, Donald Trump reannounced. Like, that's not it. We leave it there as we go to break here. Nobody better when we come back, Nick, because a man who talked about the peaceful transfer of power, something that Donald Trump didn't do back in 2021, a process that was kind of broken down that we haven't seen in this country's history since the 1860s, right? Uh, The Peaceful Transfer of Power is an oral history of America's presidential transitions. The author of that book, David Marchek, joins us on the pod when we come back after the break. 
This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. The presenting sponsor of Can We Please Talk is Fresh Roasted Coffee. Since 2009, their passion has been bringing you gourmet coffees from all over the world. You know how much Nick and I drink coffee. We love it here. I'm a K-Cup guy. Nick's that French press guy over there. Uh, right, Nick? You're a French press guy. I am. But I've also used a, a, a Chemex. I've also used right. a percolator like most people do. Yeah, But regardless of your type of grind, Fresh Roasted Coffee's got you covered. In addition to single origin blends, Mike's a Colombia person. I'm a Sumatra drinker. They've also got a variety of flavors. You can also get sampler packs too. I'm all about the sampler packs. But most importantly, let's say coffee is not your thing. If you're a tea person, mm-hmm. they got you covered too, That's Mike. Right. They cover all their bases. So go there and learn about your your learn about your coffee style. You go there to a three four question quiz you'll find out what coffee is recommended for you so you're learning something in addition to buying something but as a listener there's an additional benefit for buying from fresh roast coffee look at this man this man sets up the softball i hit it out of the park it is true um if you take that questionnaire that's on their site it's awesome and it gets you right into the flavor profile that that matches you best with the coffee that you should be buying but you want to enter a promo code at checkout put all that stuff into the cart there Enter in the promo to- promo code, excuse me, can we get 20? Can we get 20? This offer is valid for new fresh roasted coffee and positively tea customers. You're going to get 20% discount on any and all coffee and tea unless otherwise specified. Code is not valid for branded merchandise or coffee gear. One use per customer. Head to freshroastedcoffee.com today. All right, David Marchek is joining us here. He's the author of The Peaceful Transfer of Power, an oral history of Americans' presidential transitions. He's also the dean of the Kogod School of Business over at American University. Uh, David, Mike Leon, Nick Saveri, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us. Thanks for having me. David, you know, um, you and I kind of were in each other's comments on LinkedIn the other day. Dr. Chavinsky, who's a mutual friend of ours, did a fantastic review of your book, and it's over my uh, right shoulder here for the people watching us on YouTube, over Nick's shoulder as well. Um, I want you to tell us a little bit about the book, but also um, I'm fascinated by Transition Labs and the work that you started to do with the Partnership for Public Service to really tell the story about the history of the peaceful transfer of power in this country. So tell us a little bit about all the work you've been doing in this space and what ultimately led to you writing this book. Great. Thanks for having me again. So the Partnership for Public Service is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that's focused on making governments better, faster, more effective, and serving the American people better. And one of the theories of the Partnership for Public Service is that a effective government needs a good launch and therefore a new president needs a good launch. So for three or four cycles, they have run projects to improve the process of presidential transitions, make them smoother, faster, better. And I was the director of the Center for Presidential Transition during the last cycle. So at the beginning of the the project, which I started in October of 2019, someone said, hey, you should do a podcast on presidential transitions. And I said, I'm not so sure. I'm not sure anybody would really listen. I'm not sure presidential transitions is going to be such a hot topic. Little did we know that it would be on the front page of every newspaper everywhere in the country. So we started the podcast and we decided to do a profile of every modern presidential transition since Jimmy Carter. And then looking back, we did profiles and deep dives on the worst transitions in history. So Buchanan to Lincoln and Hoover to Roosevelt. And the podcast took off. I mean, it was really incredible. It was Politico said it was the, it was their favorite podcast of the cycle. And um, we had great guests. We have every, we had pretty much every chief of staff from, from Reagan on, including James Baker, the third, who was Reagan's chief of staff and secretary of state. We had Josh Bolton, John Podesta, we had uh, historians like Ken Burns 
and Eric Rauschway, who's a historian and expert on Roosevelt. And it took off. And then because it took off and because the 2020 transition was so rocky, um, we decided to make a book out of it. And we took the transcripts of the podcast and then did an analysis of each of the transitions that we studied. And we wrote a book and University of Virginia Press published it. Ken Burns did the uh, preface and the forward and it's, it's, it's kind of taken off. So we're, I'm very happy with uh, the results and happy with the impact. David, when we think about the history of presidential transitions, you know, we think most notably of, you know, from our first president, you know, from George Washington, you know, the advocate for a peaceful transfer. Um, And that obviously set a precedent, you know, when you've studied and through the conversations you've had, you know, with these different transitions that we've seen historically, what do you find to be some of the most notable innovations, like what would be considered the most watershed moments in the evolution of, of that transition of power? Well, a modern president faced gargantuan tasks when a candidate becomes president-elect and a president-elect becomes president. So the time between the election and the inauguration is typically around 75 to 77 days. In that short period of time, a president needs to name the cabinet, staff the entire White House, get ready to to unveil a budget, a multi-trillion dollar budget, uh, run the government, which has 4 million uh, employees. It's a gargantuan task. Just the personnel process alone is huge. So there are 4,000 political positions, 4,000, and 1,250 of them need to be confirmed by the United States Senate. It's almost impossible for a president to get those people in place. And so what modern transitions require is for candidates to start working very early, the spring of every election year, to get people starting to vet people for their potential appointments, to start planning the schedule, to start drafting executive orders, to start planning what they'll do if they are to win. So prior to uh, about 20 years ago, candidates were criticized for being presumptuous for planning their transitions. So Bill Clinton famously didn't want to put a lot of time into transition planning because he didn't want to appear presumptuous. Now, the best practice is that everybody that runs for president needs to be presumptuous. They need to assume they're going to win because if they wake up the day after the election and they won and they don't have plans, the whole country is going to be in bad shape. David, you know, I'm so glad that you said that because it kind of feeds into a little bit of a follow up here. There was a Mark Twain quote in your book about history not repeating itself, but it does rhyme. And right now what we're seeing and what the news has covered around election denial and people that are not accepting, you know, basic processes that are free and fair. Um, and, and you guys get into that conversation with a few historians, like you mentioned, Ken Burns is featured in the book as well uh, about this conversation. But I want to get into a little bit of the kind of the foreshadowing and the transitions that happen, because this is not the most volatile period in our nation's history, funny enough. Um, what do you make of some of the things that are happening right now in the political space where people are not accepting normal processes that used to be mundane and under the radar that you know nobody even checked for and now we're having 24 7 news cycles of the confirmation the december 14th process that comes into play with the electoral count like normal things that used to fly under the radar are now no longer like that they're being covered and given the attention what do you make of all of this that's playing out now in the political space well let me quote someone who's smarter and more eminent than me ken burns So he came on the podcast twice. The first time he came on in the summer of 2020. And his message was, Dave, you're focused on the minutia. You're focused on personnel and the appointments and kind of the nuts and bolts. But let's step back and look at the history of the United States. We've had more than 230 years of since George Washington handed the reins to John Adams of one president handing off power to another. Presidents haven't wanted to leave, but they've left. And for 230 years, we've had this unbroken, peaceful transitions. And he used these words, no arms have been raised, no troops have been alerted, no shots fired, and no one's died. And so I had him on after January 6th. And I said, Ken, what about this statement? Because now we've had 
troops alerted, arms raised, shots fired, people died. And he said, this is unprecedented territory. I've chronicled the worst parts of American history, the Civil War, the violence in Vietnam, some of the civil rights problems and you know the history of slavery in the United States. This is unprecedented. I think that we're we're taping this a you know a week after the last election where a lot of the election deniers lost, although some won. And I think the American people have spoken, which is we need we may not be unified, but we we have to support the institutions of government, the the foundations of democracy. And that's part of the essence of the book, which is to create some hope that we can get back to the nonpartisan, bipartisan focus on transitions where the peaceful transfer of power from one president to another is peaceful, it's smooth, and even though one candidate lost, they respect the will of the American people. David, when we think about an unpeaceful transition like we just saw in from the 2020 election, you just mentioned something important there about hope. Ideally, or at least from what you've learned in your various conversations, what are the safeguards that are currently in place, but then also should be in place to ensure that for all citizens, you know, our perception of a smooth transition is there, but also our willingness to believe in our system of democracy continues throughout um, either a perilous or a, an established transition of power. So let's go back to the Kennedy-Nixon race of 1960. It was an incredibly close race. Uh, Kennedy essentially won by one vote per precinct across the United States. It was that close. And Nixon, seeing this result, many of his advisors encouraged him to fight the election, to deny the results, and to contest it. Now, Nixon was no paragon of virtue, as we know. But he basically said, I don't want to interfere with democracy. Kennedy won, and I don't want to imperil his start. And so he conceded to Kennedy in the middle of the night, even though it was an extremely close election, much closer than the Trump-Biden election. Congress in 1963 said that was actually a scary moment. We know that some of Nixon's advisors advised him to basically try to blow up the election. And, and cast doubt on the integrity of our electoral process. And so Congress passed the Presidential Transition Act of 1963, which created norms and processes. That law has been amended multiple times um, over the last 50 years. And essentially, the law now requires the outgoing administration to cooperate with the incoming. So even under Trump, Trump's people did implement the law. They, under the radar, very carefully did exactly what the law was required up until the election. And then when Trump focused on it, he kind of put the brakes on and threw everything up in the air. So fortunately, our institutions were bent, but they didn't break in the last election. Now, Congress, I think, can strengthen the laws. They can... um, make it easier to start the formal transition process. You recall that the formal transition process was delayed about 30 days um, under the the last election. Um, They can empower career officials as opposed to political appointees with more authority. Um, And they can start the transition process earlier. So those type of reforms I think would be beneficial for the country and would help avoid some of the problems we had in the 2020 election. David, it's like you're feeling, um, feeding into these follow-ups, excuse me, uh, perfectly, because uh, almost like you have access to our questions, because um, you mentioned a bunch of this stuff in the book, and I, I was talking about the process before. Somebody that's listening to this podcast, maybe they're going to a bookstore, they see your book. Um, tell us a little bit more in depth about why they should pick up this book, why this stuff is really important, because you've outlined a couple different moments, not only in talking with us right now, but that you outlined in the book, everyone knows famously about Al Gore and, and George W. Bush and the holdup there and what that led to with respect to seats not being filled and an attack on this country, you know, that that was terrible. Um, tell us a little bit about 
what somebody seeing this book in the bookstore right now wants to read this and wants to learn more about why this process is so important and why what we've seen over the last 18 months is kind of an anomaly. So it's literally a matter of life and death and our national security of, of our country. Let me just give you a couple examples. So again, a president has 77 days to get his or her people in place. And like you, with your whatever, you know, with your podcast or with a big corporation, it relies on having people in place to do their jobs. This is one of the only spots in the world where when there's an election, literally the entire top layer of government clears out, the entire White House clears out. So when I, I worked for President Clinton, I entered the building on January 20th, 1993, and nobody was there. The desks were empty. The computers didn't work. It was just a building. So in when Bush won, you recall that there was a dispute in Florida, 537 votes determined the outcome of one state, Florida, which determined who won 270 electoral votes. And the Supreme Court didn't rule until December 12th or December 13th, which means that Bush only had 36 or 37 days, which is about half the normal amount of time that a president has during the transition. Fast forward eight months to when he took the oath of office. Two planes hit the World Trade Center, a plane hit the Pentagon, and a plane crashed in Western Pennsylvania. So the worst terrorist attack in the United States since Pearl Harbor. Bush only had slightly more than half of his national security officials in place at the top level, half. And half of those had only been in office for two months. That meant that only 25% of the top officials had really been on the job for more than a few months. And the 9-11 Commission did an autopsy of what happened on 9-11, what worked, what didn't. And they found that this shortened transition imperiled President Bush's ability to get his national security team in place. And the fact that he didn't have his entire national security team in place imperiled the, the nation's national security readiness. So it's literally a matter of life and death. Now let's fast forward to 2020 during the last election. Biden faced the worst crises any president has faced since Roosevelt. We had four crises going on at the same time. We had a global pandemic, which peaked during the transition. 172,000 Americans died between election day and inauguration day, 172,000. We had a racial reckoning in the wake of George Floyd's murder, protests, um, tension, cities burning. We had an unemployment crisis with almost 20 million Americans out of work because of the pandemic. And then on top of that, we had a political crisis. So the most important policy issue when Joe Biden took office on January 20th was not some esoteric policy issue, not a tax issue, not a foreign policy issue. It was getting shots in arms. The vaccine was ready, but there was no distribution plan. And so it literally was a matter of life and death for the president, for President Biden, President-elect Biden, to be able to work with the Pentagon, to work with the Department of Health, to work with the budget office, to plan to get shots in arms, to get that distribution plan out the door so Americans could save their lives and get back to work. And that collaboration was delayed because of the lack of respect and the denial of the outcome of the election. So it's life and death. That's why that's why this book matters. Dave, it's something we often talk about with authors, <clears throat> especially those who've been in the history space, is the connection between your work to the American classroom, you know, when we think about history instruction for high schoolers and even through middle school and even, you know, when students go on to college, you know, you just spoke about the importance of the transition from that standpoint, you know, threats domestically and, and externally. But what would you say to to the American history teacher in this country about the value of understanding and how to frame the importance of transitions. Because we think often in history curriculum from the standpoint of specific dates, right? Like 1865, 1861, um, 1776. You know, we think of these very specific moments, 
but you're speaking to process. What's the value of understanding process in the American history classroom? So the process is essential for an effective government to serve the American people. Process is critical to uphold the foundations of our democracy. And process is not sexy, but it's what gets the job done. And so here the book highlights the good, the bad, the ugly of various processes that candidates and president-elects have used to get ready to be president on January 20th, to hit the ground running. What's worked, what hasn't worked. Um, and this, I've received emails and calls from business schools, from political science departments, from high school teachers all across the country saying, this is really important. You know, every other aspect of the presidency has been dissected numerous times. There are 15,000 books on Lincoln alone, but there's there are very few uh, books that have focused on presidential transition. I think there are four or five that have been written in history. I read all of them. And so the goal of this book was to contribute to the literature, to contribute to understanding, and ultimately to help future officials who are part of transition plannings to do their job better, faster, more efficiently to serve the American people and help their president-elect hit the ground running. That's why it's important. David Marchek is the dean of the Kogod School of Business over at American University. But more importantly, he's the author of a really good book, The Peaceful Transfer of Power, An Oral History of Americans' Presidential Transitions. The book is over both of our shoulders. David, you don't have the book over your shoulder. We're promoting the book more than you over here. Uh, no. Uh, I know. Th thank you so much for hopping on the podcast. Continued success to you. Go get David's book now, available wherever books are sold. Thank you again for hopping on the podcast. Stay safe and continued success to you, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your website should be a marketing asset, not an engineering challenge. Empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams, Webflow combines the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and places them all in a completely visual canvas. Trusted by companies like Lattice and Discord, it changes the way marketers, designers, and engineers create for the web. Now you can build the site you want without the dev time. Start building for free at webflow.com. All right, our thank yous there. To David Marchek, he was great. Nick, I, I mean, I just thought that that was that was a really great topic. Well, one liner. What's a one liner for you? One takeaway, real quick, uh, on on David Marchek and his book. There, you can go check it out wherever books are sold. Shedding light on, I feel like I'm being word counted here. <laughs> Shedding light on an un unspoken yet important event in American history. Yeah, which is the the transfer of power from one administration to another at its core. It's one of the most it's one of the most important and unique things that's made this experiment in democracy that is the United States of America functioning because of the fact you've had 45 administrations. Um, yeah, no, you're right. I, I got I thought you were going to keep going, but no, great job. Um, we leave it there. Like I said, thank you to David Marchick for coming on the program. Um, you can check out this interview with David that we just did on our video channel over on YouTube. Type in Can We Please Talk Podcast. Hit the subscribe button for us, please. 
comment too. Email us, folks, if you want to talk about either something you heard David say, something that we talked about in our first segment, uh, the House, the Senate, everything that we've been covering over the last couple of weeks. Email us, can we please talk podcast at gmail.com. Audio podcast platforms, you know by now. Shout out to everybody who listens across Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five star review and comment. Please don't make me beg for that, please, folks. Shout out to ACAST, our hosting platform. We can't do it without them. Can't do it without each and every one of you that listens, watches the program, writes in good, bad, or indifferent. You know how we feel about you. As always, I am Mike Leon. To the person who responded to my colleagues' comments, about Kyrie Irving that were recorded and put on social media. It was one of our better posts, actually. Um, your anti-Semitism showing, sir. Do something about that. I'm Nick Sperry. Check out that post. Check out every episode. We'll see you next time. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.